Father God, thank you for this time now. We pray by your Holy Spirit that you'd open our eyes, help us to see clearly more of Jesus so we can follow him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this evening I'm delighted that you get to hear the best and most effective sermon you will ever hear. But I should probably clarify, you've already heard it. Uh, we heard Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost as he explains the meaning of what people have seen and heard with the tongues of fire coming on people. They speak miraculous, uh, miraculously in different languages that can be understood by native speakers from all over the world. And uh, that's what we saw last week in verses 1 to 13. And by the end of this sermon, that then Peter then stands up to preach, the number of believers in Jesus has gone from a group of 120 to over 3,000 in one day. That is a pretty effective sermon. I think I calculated 2,500% growth. And it's a lot of baptisms happening at once. On the face of it, it's also a pretty short sermon, as Luke records it in those verses. It only takes a few minutes to read. But before we get our hopes up too high, if you look at verse 40... Luke talks about how many other words that Peter used as he preached, implying this is a kind of executive summary rather than a word-for-word transcript. It's also possible he preached a series of sermons like this through the day. But still, this is the beginning of explosive growth through the book of Acts. And it's, uh, it's exactly as Jesus promised back in chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses. And we saw last week, Luke draws our attention to the Holy Spirit in chapter 2, verse 4. This phenomenon of people speaking miraculously in different languages, different tongues, that can be understood across the world, that is the result of them being filled with the Holy Spirit. And then and now, talk of the Holy Spirit raises lots of questions for people. So who is the Holy Spirit? What is his role? How do I know if I have the Holy Spirit in me? What should I expect? Do we talk about the Holy Spirit enough? Is it possible to undervalue him and his role in the lives of God's people? Well, the work of the Holy Spirit is the starting point for Peter's sermon. The presenting question is back there in verse 12. With all these people speaking in different languages and the power of the Holy Spirit, a bunch of people there are confused and they ask, what does this mean? What does this mean? Are they drunk? Say some others. So Peter stands up to preach. And very quickly it becomes clear, in order to answer these questions, you need to take a step back and understand not just the Holy Spirit, but you need to understand the whole plan of God and Jesus and where God's people fit into all of that as well. So this, uh, this sermon that, that's recorded here has two main sections. We're going to look at each of those, then we're going to look, thirdly, at the response that comes afterwards as well. But each of his ma- main, two main sections, if you look, begins, fellow Jews or fellow Israelites, verse 14, verse 22. He says, listen carefully, listen to this. So we've got these two main chunks uh, before we see the response. So, first of all, and you can see on the back of the yellow notice sheet, if you want to follow or take notes, He he has this quote from the prophet Joel, and you can sum up the message as everyone's invited. Everyone's invited, verses 14 to 22. So listen, Peter says. 
These people aren't drunk. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. And this isn't one of the bars in Gatwick Airport in August with people inexplicably starting their package holiday with a few breakfast beers. No, he says, you need to understand what the prophet Joel said. Now, you know that thing where you're going on the tube somewhere, uh, somewhere you don't know all that well, and you pop out of the tube station at the other end, and it's totally disorienting. Even if you've got a map, you know, you're thinking, well, which way is up? Which way am I facing? Is this the main road? Is this a side street? If I, if I walk up here, am I going to find after a minute or two I'm going in totally the wrong direction? Invariably, I find the answer is yes. Whatever you do, I don't know how you find it. Well, Peter's aim in these uh, verses is to orient his hearers so that they understand where they are on the map of God's big plan. We're in the last days bit of the map, he says, verse 17. And he he quotes from Joel. And we studied Joel, if you remember, if you were with us. Don't worry if you weren't, but if you were with us last term, we studied Joel for a few weeks and we looked into small groups as well. And this book of Joel is from the Old Testament, a few hundred years before Jesus. And it talks about the day of the Lord that is coming. They've experienced some calamity, some kind of calamity, some awful thing, a plague of locusts it talks about. And the message of the book of Joel is, well, you face this really difficult time that you've been through, this disaster, but something even more serious is coming when God is going to step in to judge the world. So, book of Joel, what do you need to do? The people listening then, they were told you need to turn back to God. And then that's the sort of message of the first chapter and a half. And then at the end of the second chapter you get these verses that Peter now quotes so basically word for word at the end of chapter two in Joel and he says sometime after they turn back to God he will pour out his spirit verse 17 and everyone all kinds of people is going to prophesy and dream dreams and see visions now we looked at this in a lot more depth this particular little bit um, and if you you know you might find it helpful to go back and listen to that sermon again or on, on the website or if you haven't heard it before But one of the things we saw is that this language of prophesying and dream dreams and seeing visions, this is standard Old Testament language for being a spokesman, being a spokesperson for God, being a prophet, being one who knows God personally and therefore can represent him to others. But the extraordinary thing is that what Joel promised was that when the Holy Spirit was poured out, everyone would be like this. Everyone would know God personally. Not just a few special official prophets, but young and old, men and women, all types of people, he's saying. And there will be wonders, he says. Signs, blood, fire, billows of smoke. And again, we hear that and we think, oh, that sounds like the end of the world. But again, one of the things we saw was, this is standard Old Testament language again, not for the end of history as such, but for the end of any era within history, when kingdoms fall, when there's a big change, this kind of language is used. And that's exactly what's happening here at the beginning of Acts. Jesus has died and risen and ascended. The Holy Spirit has been poured out. It's a massive moment, a defining moment in the history of the people of God. And what Peter is saying is, This, what you now see in front of you, you people listening to Peter's sermon, what you see in front of you 
is what Joel was talking about. This is the start of a new era in God's plan. And we're now into the last days before Jesus returns. The last days doesn't mean the last sort of few 24-hour periods. It means the final era, the final age. In other words, there's nothing more in terms of the big events of salvation history that needs to happen before Jesus comes back. And verse 21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So do you see, as this new era begins with the Holy Spirit being poured out, everyone is invited. Call on the name of the Lord and you can be saved. What you need to be saved from will become a little clearer in a moment, but for now he's saying, you're invited and anyone, any person can now can know God personally and prophesy or speak about God to others because they know God themselves. So Peter's getting pretty quickly to application, but from the outset we need to see if everyone's invited, that means you and I are invited. In one sense here, the primary focus was uh, Jewish people for the first few chapters of Acts, but even then it was clear a way would be found for Gentiles to come in too. And so you or I, Jew or Gentile, young or old, male or female, rich or poor, whoever we are and whatever we've done, we are invited. And that means so also are those around us, our friends, families, neighbours, colleagues. They're invited to call on the name of the Lord. So that is step one to see in this Sermon of Peter's. Everyone's invited, but the question then is, well, if you're invited to call on the name of the Lord, well, who is this Lord that we've called to invite, to, to, we're told to, invited to call on? Who is this Lord? So that's what we see secondly. Jesus is the key. Jesus is the key, verses 22 to 36. These verses, 22 to 36, they unpack how in these last days, when the Holy Spirit has been poured out, the one that we need to call on and be saved, as Peter has just said, his name is Jesus. And what we then get, and this is the, the argument here is quite dense, okay? So I want you to really sort of get your, get your thinking caps on, and I'll try and lead us through this to see uh, briefly uh, what, what's going on here. But he gives two types of proof of what he's saying. Two types of proof that show that Jesus is the Lord that you need to call on. He gives eyewitness proof and evidence, and then he gives scripture proof and evidence. Eyewitnesses and scripture. So, okay, eyewitnesses. He says, you saw Jesus live and do miracles, wonders, and signs. Verse 22. And you saw him be handed over and die. And so did lots of people, even if you weren't there personally, there were people who saw this. So you saw this guy Jesus live and you saw him uh, be handed over. In fact, he goes further. In fact, it was you who are listening. He was handed over to you and you put him to death on the cross. You are responsible, in other words, he's saying, for the, for the greatest act of evil the world has, has seen. Because here were human beings literally murdering the one who made them, who'd become a man. Now we need to say, particularly in the context of Holocaust Memorial Day, just this last Thursday, there's no justification for imagining that Peter's words here should be heard as applying in some way to all Jewish people everywhere. 
as if later generations, for example, should be blamed or condemned for what happened here. That's not what Peter's saying here, and it can't be heard in that kind of way. What he's saying is that these particular Israelites in that particular generation, they rejected their Messiah. And they didn't act alone either. They had the help of wicked men, he says. The Romans, verse, 20, uh, verse 23. And of course, he's not going to go on to condemn them and just say, you know, that, may, that means there's no hope for you now. Look at what you've done. He's saying, look at what you've done. But you, he's going to go on to say there is forgiveness possible. If you come to Jesus as the fullest way of expressing their Jewish identity. But before he does that, before he issues that invitation to them, he shows how God was able to turn this great act of rejection and evil into the greatest act of love by raising Jesus from the dead. And he brings in his second witness, his second proof of Jesus' identity. He points to King David and Psalm 16 in the Old Testament. Uh, which he quotes for 25 to 31. Even David, he says, realised that it would be impossible for God's Messiah when he came to stay dead. Well, who was he talking about? He can't be David himself, verse 29, he says. Well, because his tomb is still here. You can go and see it, he says. So he must have been looking forward to what God has now done in raising Jesus from the dead. We are witnesses of it again, he, he, he emphasises. And then... So he's, ex he's explaining how the scriptures point, and they must have been talking about Jesus, they must have been talking about this. And then verse 33, he starts to bring together all that he's been saying and connecting it to the events they've just seen and have been asking about. God raising Jesus from the dead is a sign that Jesus is no ordinary person. And that is why God has raised him, not just to life on earth again, but to rule over the universe at his right hand which means he is as close to God as he can be, his right-hand man. And now, look, he's acting as God acts by pouring out the Holy Spirit, which you, Peter says, have seen and heard in the tongues of fire and in the speaking in other languages. Okay, so what's the logic then? This is where to fade back in, if you faded out over that little, little dense part. But uh, Peter's point is this. What you are seeing in front of you with your eyes... And what you're tempted to put into the category of kind of Gatwick Airport departure lounge breakfast beers behaviour, what you are seeing is a sign that Jesus has been installed as God's king at God's right hand. You thought you'd killed him and got rid of him, but God raised him from the dead and lots of us saw him. Now look, you can see the evidence that the next stage of the plan is unfolding. But here's the really striking thing. That verse 33 where he says, you know, exalted to the, uh, to the right hand of God, he's received from the Holy Spirit, the promised Holy Spirit, free from the Father, the promised Holy Spirit has poured out what you now see in here. That verse 33, that's not actually the climax of Peter's arguments. That's not the finishing point. He wants to go further. He's got another psalm, Psalm 110, which again has this idea of the Messiah when he comes would rule over everyone, including his enemies, just as Jesus has done by rising from the dead and now reigning at God's right hand, and then he comes to his punchline. Then he comes to his climax. What is that? It's actually verse 36. This is where he lands with, after all of this. He says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, 
both Lord and Messiah. So his point is not to end on a point where he's saying something like, you know, come on, you who are listening, have you personally received the Holy Spirit? Are you sure you have? His end point is, are you calling on the one that God has made Lord and Messiah? Are you calling on Jesus Christ? So you get the logic, he's saying, look at these tongues of fire and speaking languages, what does it mean? It's what Joel said would happen when he spoke of the last days. But in those days, what you need to do is call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Who is that Lord? He's the one you crucified, but God raised from the dead. He's the Messiah, the promised king. He's the Lord of all, reigning over the world. So call on him. And so you see, the striking thing is, we began wanting to know more about the Holy Spirit... Who is the Holy Spirit? What's this going on? What are this phenomena? You know, tell us more about the Holy Spirit. These are our questions. Their questions then as well. What does this mean, they ask? We've ended by being told to look at Jesus. Do you see? He's the key. And again and again, what you find with the Holy Spirit is that that is his job to keep the spotlight firmly on Jesus. So think of a spotlight in the theatre. You know, if you go to the theatre, what, what's the spotlight doing? Well, it shines on the stage. And the point is that you don't then go looking for the source of the light. You know, you, if you try and look, look for it, you'll kind of get blinded if you're in the wrong place, but you'll look up. But you actually, in a dark theatre, you won't even be able to see the spotlight, but you'll be able to see the effects of it. And what will you see the spotlight doing? It will be shining on the star of the show and making sure that the star of the show stays in your vision and is not lost from your sight. Do you see? So that was one of the questions that we had at the start. What is the role of the Holy Spirit? Well, he makes people see Jesus more clearly. Whenever you start thinking about the Holy Spirit, the, the end point needs to be thinking about Jesus because that's who he wants you to see. How do I know if I have the Holy Spirit then? Well, are you trusting Jesus? Are you throwing yourself on his mercy as Peter and Joel have called us to do? We, we had a question at the start where we said, is it possible to undervalue the work of the Holy Spirit? Well, yes, yes it is. It is possible to undervalue the work of the Holy Spirit. But the main way that we will undervalue his work is by taking our eyes off Jesus do you see? By thinking that we need something or someone to supplement our relationship with God, as if simply trusting Jesus and confessing our sins and turning back to him and praying and walking closely with him and with one another isn't enough. As if growing in holiness day by day, growing in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, the fruit of the Spirit that Paul highlights later in, in, in the New Testament. As if those things are somehow uh, not in themselves enough. They sound, actually sound quite humdrum in, in one sense. You know, oh, I want to live a Spirit-filled Christian life. Well, grow in love, grow in uh, joy, grow in peace, grow in patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. How do you do that? Well, you do that by keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus, who exemplified those things, who when we trust in him and we're joined to him by the Spirit, he works in us to make us more like him 
exemplifying those things. That is what the Christian life is. It isn't something other than that. And we undervalue the work of the Holy Spirit when we take our eyes off Jesus, who gives us from the benefits of his, his death and his life, and we start thinking we've got to look somewhere else. That is not valuing the work of the Holy Spirit more, it's valuing the work of the Holy Spirit less. Now, of course, what people sometimes mean when they say you don't seem to value the work of the Holy Spirit in your life is they mean, well, your faith in Jesus doesn't seem to make a difference to your life, which may be something to think about. It's a a reasonable question to ask. Or, or, Or people ask, how can I experience more of the Holy Spirit in my life? And again, that, can be, that question can come from a number of different angles, but actually, maybe it's just saying, what I want is to see my faith in Jesus change me. Because surely being a Christian isn't just believing facts about the past, but it's living in relationship with God in the present. Well, yes, of course it is. That's absolutely right. Because when we believe in Jesus, when we keep our eyes fixed on him, we are trusting in a living saviour one who died and rose and ascended into heaven. And the Holy Spirit then will keep our eyes fixed on that Saviour, from whose death we now benefit as we trust in him. So we want to see, we, we, you know, see change in our lives, and that takes us to the, the third section, the response that we then see here. Luke's summary of the response to what happened. New life starts here, verses 37 to 47. New life starts here. What shall we do, they, they ask. It's no wonder they ask that, is it? They've just heard that the one they crucified is now the boss of the world. What can they do? Well, Peter says there are two things to do and two, thing, two gifts to receive. Two things to do to repent and be baptised. Turn from your old ways and turn back to Jesus. Be baptised as a symbol of leaving your old life behind in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who died and rose. And what will be the result? Well, there's two things to receive. There is the forgiveness of sins, even the greatest of sins, murdering their maker, and there is the gift of the Holy Spirit. If that greatest of sins could be forgiven, well, so can any other sin that you can think of. Isn't that right? You know, we might be deeply aware and ashamed of ways that we've turned our backs on God. Well, turn back to him and know that those sins are forgiven, Peter says. And then crucially, he says, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Not at this point the gifts, plural, of the Holy Spirit. That's a different thing and it's important and it comes up later in the New Testament. But at this point he's saying, the Holy Spirit will come to you as a gift and he will take up residence in you. What can you expect that to feel like? Well, you can expect that to feel like you are drawn more and more to Jesus. Because that's the Holy Spirit's job. He puts the spotlight on Jesus and on the benefit of what he's done. What what change can I expect then if the Holy Spirit is working in me? Well, Luke paints the picture in verses 42 to 47 of what that change looks like. And again, we looked at these verses a couple of years ago, kind of pre-pandemic, a lifetime ago. Um, and we looked at 42 to 47 in a lot more detail. But when the Holy Spirit is poured out and, and comes to live among his people, this is the kind of life that results. And very briefly in the time we have left, let's just look briefly at these 
verses and see what, what, what kind of thing he outlines here. A life where people are devoted to the apostles' teaching, to God's word. And they're devoted to one another. And they're devoted to the breaking of bread in the widest sense of loving one another and expressing hospitality to one another. They're devoted to prayer. Now, we don't have time to look in, in, in lots of detail, but just notice so often we focus simply on ourselves when we think of the work of the Holy Spirit and the ideal Christian life, a life of victory over sin and the things that I struggle with. But Luke is implying the work of the Holy Spirit that you receive when you become a Christian, you receive him, uh, that the work in you is as much outward in our relationships with others as it is inwards in our hearts as individuals. So just to pick out a couple of things, they were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to prayer. So we've started, I don't know if everyone knows about this, but we started gathering to pray at uh, just before half past five each Sunday before this service. Um, and uh, it's a great, we were just praying for the, the, this, this service and this time together um, and committing ourselves, committing the growth and development of this service to God. It's a great thing to do. And it's been fantastic. It was really encouraging. We had two tables of people praying this evening for it. Let, let's keep doing that. That is a mark of having the Holy Spirit in us as God's people, is that we are devoted to prayer, that we want to bring our lives and needs before God together. So that, that, that's a fantastically encouraging thing. Let's keep doing that before the evening service. We've got our prayer meeting on, on Wednesday evening as well. Um, you know, if you can join us in person, if you can join us online, come and, and pray. That is a mark of what it means to be a church that's filled with the Holy Spirit, is to pray together. Uh, we want to help people learn how to do that, and we want to help people see, um, if you, maybe you've never prayed out loud before, and you're not quite sure what that means, and that can be a bit scary. But just come and listen. Come and listen to how other people pray and learn from that and see what it means to be devoted to prayer. They're devoted to prayer. And then uh, we read as well, they were devoted to one another. And in our world, in our country, there's so much to be divided about and grumpy about, isn't there? There's so much to be discouraged about. There's so much to cancel one another about and we will probably find things to argue about among ourselves if we dig deep enough we could probably argue about face coverings and vaccine mandates and covid policies to name just a few things but as a friend of mine put it and don't mishear me but the christian position on these things has to be anti-vex anti-vex v-e-x not a-x anti-vex to resolve to be so devoted to one another in the power of the Holy Spirit as we come together around Jesus Christ that we don't fall out over things that are not the gospel and are not going to impact where we or others spend eternity. And the result of the Christians living in this way, if you read, was the Lord verse 47, added to their number daily those who were being saved. The way they were living, and obviously we could go into a lot more depth in terms of you know, all the things they were doing, but the way they were living 
was so extraordinary to the world around them that people took notice and said, there's something going on there. I want to know what's going on there. I want to be part of that. And in this world which, you know, seems to be only able to kind of fall out with each other all the time and gradually kind of cancel everybody and cast people into the outer darkness, uh, left, right and centre, a community of people that says we've got something that means we can be united despite even disagreeing about things um, because we, we are united around Jesus. That is going to look different to the world around us. As small and insignificant as we might feel, if you've got Jesus at the heart of a community, it's going to be different to people around us. And, and Luke is encouraging us to, to, to be confident in that. And to keep, therefore, almost ruthlessly keep Jesus at the centre and say nothing else. We don't want to find our unity in anything else. We don't want to fall out over anything else because Jesus is what matters. And so then the world will look and they'll see a people focused on Jesus. And then those God calls will come to trust in him as we share the good news about him with them. So let's pray for God to keep doing that through us now. Let's pray. Father God, we um, acknowledge before you that we so easily find we we find it so easy to be distracted from keeping our eyes on Jesus. We thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. We thank you that his role is to keep us looking to Jesus, calling on him. Thank you that he the Holy Spirit lives in each one of us if we're trusting in Jesus to enable us to be joined to Jesus by faith, to find forgiveness and life in him. And so help us to uh, keep encouraging each other in that, to be living out this spirit-filled life as a community of people devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer and just to all that would glorify Jesus. And we pray that through that you would then work in us and through us and uh, add to our number those who are being saved. We pray in Jesus' name.